This episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their Highland Cow Slippers. They're woolly bullies. They're really cool, they're really snuggly, and they will keep your feet warm. If you live somewhere where it's cold, awesome. If you just want to walk around your house with cool, cute little bull slippers, hey, BunnySlippers.com has you covered. So check it out. Found item dot found itemclothing.com also has your favorite I don't know cult classic t-shirts if you want to check that out so bunnyslippers.com founditemclothing.com thank you everyone for coming back to week four week five of March I I don't even know anymore but hey uh, we've got it going on and you've got it going on because you're listening to Black Clock Audio Tales. I am your host, D.B. Spitzer. And hey, if you want to help out the show real quick right now, why don't you go to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen, and give us a you know, four or five uh, star review. Let us know what you think of the show. If you want to contact us and give us some suggestions, anything we can do to help you enjoy the show better, let us know. Okay, and that's on the contact of pgttcm.com. We're also on Facebook, Black Clock Audio Tales, and People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, uh, my monthly show about the Cthulhu Mythos. And if you want, we can make that twice a month again. Hey, we can do that. Thank you so much for listening. Help support the show by going to pgttcm.com. Hit the links, hit the show notes, hit hit all hit up all that stuff. We got a bunch of stuff. We got Dave's stuff there. We've got Zach's stuff there. We've got interviews with Ken Height and Adam Scott Glancy. Let's see, Rodney Anonymous of the Dead Milkman and Victim Seven. So yeah, we've got all kinds of stuff, and we want more stuff with you in the future let us know what you want you want more spooky stuff do you want more ghost stories we'll get it done all right so hey how are you doing hope you're doing all right i'm doing pretty good anyone who follows me on social media knows i'm doing all right i was sick doing better but you know what here comes Arthur Mackens, the terror. Terror. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. The Terror by Arthur Macken. Chapter 14 The End of the Terror. Dr. Lewis maintained that we should never begin to understand the real significance of life until we began to study just those aspects of it which we now dismiss and overlook as utterly inexplicable and therefore unimportant. We were discussing a few months ago the awful shadow of the terror which at length had passed away from the land. I had formed my opinion, partly from observation, partly from certain facts which had been communicated to me and the passwords having been exchanged, I found that Lewis had come by very different ways to the same end. And yet, he said, it is not a true end, or rather, it is like all the ends of human inquiry. 
it leads one to a great mystery. We must confess that what has happened might have happened at any time in the history of the world. It did not happen until a year ago, as a matter of fact, and therefore we made up our minds that it could never happen, or one would better say it was outside the range even of imagination. But this is our way. Most people are not quite sure that the Black Death, otherwise the plague, will never invade Europe again. They have made up their complacent minds that it was due to dirt and bad drainage. As a matter of fact, the plague had nothing to do with dirt or with drains, and there is nothing to prevent its ravaging England tomorrow. But if you tell people so, they won't believe you. They won't believe in anything that isn't there at the particular moment when you are talking to them. As with the plague, so with the terror. We could not believe that such a thing could ever happen. Remnant said, truly enough, that whatever it was, it was outside theory, outside our theory. Flatland cannot believe in the cube or the sphere. I agreed with all this. I added that sometimes the world was incapable of seeing, much less believing, that which was before its own eyes. Look, I said, at any 18th century print of a Gothic cathedral. You will find that the trained artistic eye even could not behold in any true sense the building that was before it. I have seen an old print of Peterborough Cathedral that looks as if the artist had drawn it from a clumsy model constructed of bent wire and children's bricks. Exactly, because Gothic was outside the aesthetic theory and therefore vision of the time. You can't believe what you don't see. Rather, you can't see what you don't believe. It was so during the time of the terror. All this bears out what Coleridge said as to the necessity of having the idea before the facts could be of any service to one. Of course he was right. Mere facts, without the correlating idea, are nothing and lead to no conclusion. We had plenty of facts, but we could make nothing of them. I went home at the tail of that dreadful procession from Trefloin, in a state of mind very near to madness. I heard one of the soldiers saying to the other, "'There's no rat that'll spike a man to the heart, Bill.' I don't know why, but I felt that if I heard any more of such talk as that, I should go crazy. It seemed to me that the anchors of reason were parting. I left the party and took the shortcut across the fields into Porth. I looked up Davies in the high street and arranged with him that he should take on any cases I might have that evening, and then I went home and gave my man his instructions to send people on, and then I shut myself up to think it all out, if I could. You must not suppose that my experiences of that afternoon had afforded me the slightest illumination. Indeed, if it had not been that I had seen poor old Griffith's body lying pierced in his own farmyard, I think I should have been inclined to accept one of Secretan's hints, and to believe that the whole family had fallen a victim to a collective delusion or hallucination, and had shut themselves up and died of thirst through sheer madness. I think there have been such cases. It's the insanity of inhibition the belief that you can't do something which you are really perfectly capable of doing. 
but I had seen the body of the murdered man and the wound that had killed him. Did the manuscript left by Secretan give me no hint? Well, it seemed to me to make confusion worse confounded. You have seen it. You know that in certain places it is evidently mere delirium, the wanderings of a dying mind. How was I to separate the facts from the phantasms, lacking the key to the whole enigma? Delirium is often a sort of cloud castle, a sort of magnified and distorted shadow of actualities. But it is a very difficult thing, almost an impossible thing, to reconstruct the real house from the distortion of it, thrown on the clouds of the patient's brain. You see, Sacretin, in writing that extraordinary document, almost insisted on the fact that he was not in his proper sense, that for days he had been part asleep, part awake, part delirious. How was one to judge his statement, to separate delirium from fact? In one thing he stood confirmed. You remember he speaks of calling for help up the old chimney of Trefloyne. That did seem to fit in with the tales of a hollow, moaning cry that had been heard upon the alt. So far, one could take him as a recorder of actual experiences. And I looked in the old cellars of the farm and found a frantic sort of rabbit hole dug by one of the pillars. Again, he was confirmed. But what was one to make of that story of the chanting voice and the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and the chapter out of some unknown minor prophet when one has the key, it is easy enough to sort out the facts, or the hints of facts, from the delusions. But I hadn't the key on that September evening. I was forgetting the tree with lights and fires in it. That, I think, impressed me more than anything with the feeling that Secretan's story was, in the main, a true story. I had seen a like appearance down there in my own garden. But what was it? Now, I was saying that, paradoxically, it is only by the inexplicable things that life can be explained. We are apt to say, you know, a very odd coincidence, and pass the matter by, as if there were no more to be said, or as if that were the end of it. Well, I believe that the only real path lies through the blind alleys. What do you mean? Well, this is an instance of what I mean. I told you about Merritt, my brother-in-law, and the capsizing of that boat, the Mary Ann. He had seen, he said, signal lights flashing from one of the farms on the coast, and he was quite certain that the two things were intimately connected as cause and effect. I thought it all nonsense, and I was wondering how I was going to shut him up when a big moth flew into the room through that window, fluttered about and succeeded in burning itself alive in the lamp. That gave me my cue. I asked Merritt if he knew why moths made for lamps or something of the kind. I thought it would be a hint to him that I was sick of his flashlights and his half-baked theories. So it was. He looked sulky and held his tongue. But a few minutes later I was called out by a man who had found his little boy dead in a field near his cottage about an hour before. The child was so still, they said, that a great moth had settled on his forehead and only fluttered away when they lifted up the body. It was absolutely illogical. 
but it was this odd coincidence of the moth in my lamp and the moth on the dead boy's forehead that first set me on the track. I can't say that it guided me in any real sense. It was more like a great flare of red paint on a wall. It rang up my attention, if I may say so. It was a sort of shock, like a bang on the big drum. No doubt Merritt was talking great nonsense that evening, so far as his particular instance went. The flashes of light from the farm had nothing to do with the wreck of the boat. But his general principle was sound. When you hear a gun go off and see a man fall, it is idle to talk of a mere coincidence. I think a very interesting book might be written on this question. I would call it a grammar of coincidence. But as you will remember from having read my notes on the matter, I was called in about ten days later to see a man named Craddock who had been found in a field near his farm quite dead. This also was at night. His wife found him, and there were some very queer things in her story. She said that the hedge of the field looked as if it were changed. She began to be afraid that she had lost her way and got into the wrong field. Then she said the hedge was lighted up, as if there were a lot of glowworms in it, and when she peered over the stile there seemed to be some kind of glimmering upon the ground, and then the glimmering melted away and she found her husband's body near where this light had been. Now this man Craddock had been suffocated just as the little boy Roberts had been suffocated, and as that man in the Midlands who took a shortcut one night had been suffocated. Then I remembered that poor Johnny Roberts had called out about something shiny over the stile just before he played truant. Then on my part I had to contribute the very remarkable sight I witnessed here as I looked down over the garden, the appearance as of a spreading tree where I knew there was no such tree, and then the shining and burning of lights and moving colors. Like the poor child and Mrs. Craddock, I had seen something shiny, just as some man in Stratfordshire had seen a dark cloud with points of fire in it floating over the trees, and Mrs. Craddock thought that the shape of the trees in the hedge had changed. My mind almost uttered the word that was wanted, but you see the difficulties. This set of circumstances could not, so far as I could see, have any relation with the other circumstances of the terror. How could I connect all this with the bombs and machine guns of the Midlands, with the armed men who kept watch about the munition shops by day and night? Then there was the long list of people here who had fallen over the cliffs or into the quarry. There were the cases of the men stifled in the slime of the marshes. There was the affair of the family murdered in front of their cottage on the highway. There was the capsized Mary Ann. I could not see any thread that could bring all these incidents together. They seemed to me to be hopelessly disconnected. I could not make out any relation between the agency that beat out the brains of the Williams and the agency that overturned the boat. I don't know, but I think it's very likely, if nothing more had happened, that I should have put the whole thing down as an unaccountable series of crimes and accidents which chanced to occur in Marion in the summer of 1915. 
Well, of course, that would have been an impossible standpoint in view of certain incidents in Merritt's story. Still, if one is confronted by the insoluble, one lets it go at last. If the mystery is inexplicable, one pretends that there isn't any mystery. That is the justification for what is called free thinking. Then came that extraordinary business of Trefloyne. I couldn't put that on one side. I couldn't pretend that nothing strange or out of the way had happened. There was no getting over it or getting round it. I had seen with my eyes that there was a mystery, and a most horrible mystery. I have forgotten my logic, but one might say that Trefloyne demonstrated the existence of a mystery in the figure of death. I took it all home, as I have told you, and sat down for the evening before it. It appalled me not only by its horror, but here again by the discrepancy between its terms. Old Griffith, so far as I could judge, had been killed by the thrust of a pike, or perhaps of a sharpened stake. How could one relate this to the burning tree that had floated over the ridge of the barn? It was as if I said to you, here is a man drowned, and here is a man burned alive. Show that each death was caused by the same agency. And the moment that I left this particular case of Trefloyne and tried to get some light on it from other instances of the terror, I would think of the man in the Midlands who heard the feet of a thousand men rustling in the wood, and their voices as if dead men sat up in their bones and talked. And then I would say to myself, and how about that boat overturned in a calm sea? There seemed no end to it, no hope of any solution. It was, I believe, a sudden leap of the mind that liberated me from the tangle. It was quite beyond logic. I went back to that evening when Merritt was boring me with his flashlights, to the moth in the candle, and to the moth on the forehead of poor Johnny Roberts. There was no sense in it. But I suddenly determined that the child, and Joseph Craddock the farmer, and the unnamed Stratfordshire man, all found at night, all asphyxiated, had been choked by vast swarms of moths. I don't pretend even now that this is demonstrated, but I'm sure it's true. Now, suppose you encounter a swarm of these creatures in the dark. Suppose the smaller ones fly up your nostrils. You will gasp for breath and open your mouth. Then, suppose some hundreds of them fly into your mouth, into your gullet, into your windpipe. What will happen to you? You will be dead in a very short time, choked, asphyxiated. But the moths would be dead, too. They would be found in the bodies. The moths? Do you know that it is extremely difficult to kill a moth with cyanide of potassium? Take a frog, kill it, open its stomach. There you will find its dinner of moths and small beetles, and the dinner will shake itself and walk off cheerily to resume an entirely active existence. No, that is no difficulty. Well, now I came to this. I was shutting out all the other cases. I was confining myself to those that came under the one formula. I got to the assumption or conclusion, whichever you like, that certain people had been asphyxiated by the action of moths. I had accounted for that extraordinary appearance of burning or colored lights that I had witnessed myself 
when I saw the growth of that strange tree in my garden. That was clearly the cloud with points of fire in it that the Stratfordshire man took for a new and terrible kind of poison gas. That was the shiny something that poor little Johnny Roberts had seen over the stile. That was the glimmering light that had led Mrs. Craddock to her husband's dead body. That was the assemblage of terrible eyes that had watched over Treff Loin by night. Once on the right track I understood all this, for coming into this room in the dark I have been amazed by the wonderful burning and the strange fiery colors of the eyes of a single moth as it crept up the pane of glass outside. Imagine the effect of myriads of such eyes, of the movement of these lights and fires in a vast swarm of moths, each insect being in constant motion while it kept its place in the mass. I felt that all this was clear and certain. Then the next step. Of course, we know nothing about moths, rather we know nothing of moth reality. For all I know, there may be hundreds of books which treat of moth and nothing but moth. But these are scientific books, and science only deals with surfaces. It has nothing to do with realities. It is impertinent if it attempts to do with realities. To take a very minor matter, we don't even know why the moth desires the flame, but we do know what the moth does not do. It does not gather itself into swarms with the object of destroying human life. But here, by the hypothesis, were cases in which the moth had done this very thing. The moth race had entered, it seemed, into a malignant conspiracy against the human race. It was quite impossible, no doubt. That is to say, it had never happened before. But I could see no escape from this conclusion. These insects, then, were definitely hostile to man. And then I stopped, for I could not see the next step, obvious though it seems to me now. I believe that the soldier's scraps of talk on the way to Trefloin and back flung the next plank over the gulf. They had spoken of rat poison, of no rat being able to spike a man through the heart. And then suddenly I saw my way clear. If the moths were infected with hatred of men and possessed the design and the power of combining against him, why not suppose this hatred, this design, this power shared by other non-human creatures? The secret of the terror might be condensed into a sentence. The animals had revolted against men. Now the puzzle became easy enough. One only had to classify. Take the cases of the people who met their deaths by falling over cliffs or over the edge of quarries. We think of sheep as timid creatures who always ran away. But suppose sheep that don't run away. And after all, in reason, why should they run away? Quarry or no quarry, cliff or no cliff, what would happen to you if a hundred sheep ran after you instead of running from you? There would be no help for it. They would have you down and beat you to death or stifle you. Then suppose man, woman, or child near a cliff's edge or a quarry side and a sudden rush of sheep. Clearly there is no help. There is nothing for it but to go over. There can be no doubt that that is what happened in all these cases. And again, 
you know the country and you know how a herd of cattle will sometimes pursue people through the fields in a solemn stolid sort of way they behave as if they wanted to close in on you townspeople sometimes get frightened and scream and run you or i would take no notice or at the utmost wave our sticks at the herd which will stop dead or lumber off but suppose they don't lumber off the mildest old cow remember is stronger than any man what can one man or half a dozen men do against half a hundred of these beasts no longer restrained by that mysterious inhibition which has made for ages the strong the humble slaves of the weak but if you are botanizing in the marsh like that poor fellow who was staying at porth and forty or fifty young cattle gradually close round you and refuse to move when you shout and wave your stick but get closer and closer instead and get you into the slime again where is your help if you haven't got an automatic pistol you must go down and stay down while the beasts lie quietly on you for five minutes it was a quicker death for poor griffith of trefloyne one of his own beasts gored him to death with one sharp thrust of its horn into his heart and from that morning those within the house were closely besieged by their own cattle and horses and sheep and when those unhappy people within opened a window to call for help or to catch a few drops of rainwater to relieve their burning thirst the cloud waited for them with its myriad eyes of fire can you wonder that secretin's statement reads in places like mania you perceive the horrible position of those people in trefloyne not only did they see death advancing on them but advancing with incredible steps as if one were to die not only in nightmare but by nightmare but no one in his wildest most fiery dreams ever had imagined such a fate i am not astonished that secretin at one moment suspected the evidence of his own senses at another surmised that the world's end had come and how about the williams who were murdered on the highway near here the horses were the murderers the horses that afterwards stampeded the camp below by some means which is still obscure to me they lured that family into the road and beat their brains out their shod hoofs were the instruments of execution and as for the marianne the boat that was capsized i have no doubt that it was overturned by a sudden rush of the porpoises that were gambling about in the water of lamac bay a porpoise is a heavy beast half a dozen of them could easily upset a light rowing boat the munition works their enemy was rats i believe that it has been calculated that in greater london the number of rats is about equal to the number of human beings that is there are about seven millions of them the proportion would be about the same in all the great centres of population and the rat moreover is on occasion migratory in its habits you can understand now that story of the semiramis beating about the mouth of the thames and at last cast away by arcachon her only crew dry heaps of bones the rat is an expert boarder of ships and so one can understand the tale told by the frightened man who took the path by the wood that led up from the new munition works 
he thought he heard a thousand men treading softly through the wood and chattering to one another in some horrible tongue. What he did hear was the marshalling of an army of rats, their array before the battle. And conceive the terror of such an attack. Even one rat in a fury is said to be an ugly customer to meet. Conceive, then, the eruption of these terrible swarming myriads, rushing upon the helpless, unprepared, astonished workers in the munition shops. There can be no doubt, I think, that Dr. Lewis was entirely justified in these extraordinary conclusions. As I say, I had arrived at pretty much the same end by different ways, but this rather as to the general situation. While Lewis had made his own particular study of those circumstances of the terror that were within his immediate purview as a physician in large practice in the southern part of Marion. Of some of the cases which he reviewed, he had, no doubt, no immediate or first-hand knowledge, but he judged these instances by their similarity to the facts which had come under his personal notice. He spoke of the affairs of the quarry at Lanthangle, on the analogy of the people who were found dead at the bottom of the cliffs near Porth, and he was no doubt justified in doing so. He told me that, thinking the whole matter over, he was hardly more astonished by the terror in itself than by the strange way in which he had arrived at his conclusions. You know, he said, those certain evidences of animal malevolence which we knew of, the bees that stung the child to death, the trusted sheep-dogs turning savage, and so forth. Well, I got no light whatever from all this. It suggested nothing to me, simply because I had not got that idea which Coleridge rightly holds necessary in all inquiry. Facts, qua facts, as we said, mean nothing and come to nothing. You do not believe, therefore you cannot see. And then, when the truth at last appeared, it was through the whimsical coincidence, as we call such signs, of the moth in my lamp and the moth on the dead child's forehead. This, I think, is very extraordinary. And there seems to have been one beast that remained faithful, the dog at Trefloin. That is strange. That remains a mystery. It would not be wise even now to describe too closely the terrible scenes that were to be seen in the munition areas of the north and the midlands during the black months of the terror. Out of the factories issued at black midnight the shrouded dead in their coffins, and their very kinsfolk did not know how they had come by their deaths. All the towns were full of houses of mourning, were full of dark and terrible rumors, incredible as the incredible reality. There were things done and suffered that perhaps never will be brought to light. Memories and secret traditions of these things will be whispered in families, delivered from father to son, growing wilder with the passage of the years, but never growing wilder than the truth. It is enough to say that the cause of the Allies was for a while in deadly peril. The men at the front called in their extremity for guns and shells. No one told them what was happening in the places where these munitions were made. At first the position was nothing less than desperate. 
men in high places were almost ready to cry mercy to the enemy but after the first panic measures were taken such as those described by merritt in his account of the matter the workers were armed with special weapons guards were mounted machine guns were placed in position bombs and liquid flame were ready against the obscene hordes of the enemy and the burning clouds found a fire fiercer than their own many deaths occurred amongst the airmen but they too were given special guns arms that scattered shot broadcast and so drove away the dark flights that threatened the airplanes and then in the winter of 1915 to 16 the terror ended suddenly as it had begun once more a sheep was a frightened beast that ran instinctively from a little child the cattle were again solemn stupid creatures void of harm the spirit and the convention of malignant design passed out of the hearts of all the animals the chains that they had cast off for a while were thrown again about them and finally there comes the inevitable why why did the beasts who had been humbly and patiently subject to man or affrighted by his presence suddenly know their strength and learn how to league together and declare bitter war against their ancient master it is a most difficult and obscure question i give what explanation i have to give with very great diffidence and an eminent disposition to be corrected if a clearer light can be found some friends of mine for whose judgment i have very great respect are inclined to think that there was a certain contagion of hate they hold that the fury of the whole world at war the great passion of death that seems driving all humanity to destruction infected at last these lower creatures and in place of their native instinct of submission gave them rage and wrath and ravening this may be the explanation i cannot say that it is not so because i do not profess to understand the working of the universe but i confess that the theory strikes me as fanciful there may be a contagion of hate as there is a contagion of smallpox i do not know but i hardly believe it in my opinion and it is only an opinion the source of the great revolt of the beasts is to be sought in a much subtler region of inquiry i believe that the subjects revolted because the king abdicated man has dominated the beast throughout the ages the spiritual has reigned over the rational through the peculiar quality and grace of spirituality that men possess that makes a man to be that which he is and when he maintained this power and grace i think it is pretty clear that between him and the animals there was a certain treaty and alliance there was supremacy on the one hand and submission on the other but at the same time there was between the two that cordiality that exists between lords and subjects in a well-organized state i know a socialist who maintains that chaucer's canterbury tells give a picture of true democracy i do not know about that but i see that knight and miller were able to get on quite pleasantly together just because the knight knew that he was a knight and the miller knew that he was a miller if the knight had had conscientious objections to his knightly grade while the miller saw no reason why he should not be a knight 
I am sure that their intercourse would have been difficult, unpleasant, and perhaps murderous. So with man. I believe in the strength and truth of tradition. A learned man said to me a few weeks ago, when I have to choose between the evidence of tradition and the evidence of a document, I always believe the evidence of tradition. Documents may be falsified, and often are falsified. Tradition is never falsified. This is true, and therefore, I think, one may put trust in the vast body of folklore which asserts that there was once a worthy and friendly alliance between man and the beasts. Our popular tale of Dick Whittington and his cat no doubt represents the adaptation of a very ancient legend to a comparatively modern personage. But we may go back into the ages and find the popular tradition asserting that not only are the animals the subjects, but also the friends of man. All that was in virtue of that singular spiritual element in man which the rational animals do not possess. Spiritual does not mean respectable. It does not even mean moral. It does not mean good in the ordinary acceptation of the word. It signifies the royal prerogative of man, differentiating him from the beasts. For long ages he has been putting off this royal robe. He has been wiping the balm of consecration from his own breast. He has declared again and again that he is not spiritual, but rational, that is, the equal of the beasts over whom he was once sovereign. He has vowed that he is not Orpheus, but Caliban. But the beasts have also within them something which corresponds to the spiritual quality in men. We are content to call it instinct. They perceived that the throne was vacant. Not even friendship was possible between them and the self-deposed monarch. If he were not king, he was a sham, an impostor, a thing to be destroyed. Hence, I think, the terror. They have risen once. They may rise again. End of chapter 14 End of The Terror by Arthur Mackin